before we start the episode, we have two pieces of pretty big news. Yes, number one, the German authorities made an interesting arrest last week. A Syrian man called Allah M. He lived and worked as a doctor in Hesse, the federal state where Frankfurt is also located. German prosecutors alleged that this is the same man who tortured patients in a military hospital in Homs in Syria back in 2011. The details are quite gruesome. We will link to more information in the show notes. So this is the third former Syrian official arrested for crimes against humanity in Germany after the two accused in the Koblenz trial that we're covering, Iyad A and Anwar R. And this one, Allah M, he's seen as an official, as far as I can tell from the reporting, because he was a military doctor in Homs. And the reports say he was also identified by Syrian survivors and victims, similar to our case in Koblenz. Victims of this same doctor identified him, apparently, in Germany. So there's lots of parallels with our case, including also... Anwar Albuni, the Syrian human rights lawyer that identified the accused in our case Anwar R in Berlin, he, Anwar Albuni, apparently again played a role in this investigation, working with witnesses and delivering information to the investigators and the prosecutor. And yeah, so this means that the Koblenz trial really seems to be the first of its kind, but not the last. We will discuss more on this new case and other similar cases and investigations in a future episode. And while we're already busy with news, we have some fantastic news ourselves to share today. You'll remember the court reporter we talked to during the episode on the second defendant, Iyad A., her name is Hannah El-Hitami. Hannah is a freelance journalist based in Berlin, focusing on Arab countries and migration. She is following the trial very closely. We are happy to announce that Hannah will be contributing to the podcast on a regular basis. With Vritz living in Paris and me in Berlin, we can only go to Koblenz every now and then. But Hannah is there for every session. Yeah, so this is really great for the podcast and hopefully for you listeners. Um, we'll have a reporter from the courtroom, and we're really happy about this. And we will hear from Hannah already directly today, uh, later on the podcast. She called us right after the session on Wednesday with some interesting observations. We'll hear about that later. And that brings us to the start of this episode. Welcome to the ninth episode of Branch 251, where we dissect for you listeners the world's first criminal trial against Syrian regime officials for crimes against humanity and everything that has to do with it. I'm Fritz Streif. And I'm Karam Somali. Last week's episode, we feel like it was a special one. It was a, it was a special episode. It was difficult for the two survivors we talked to to go back into their memory and tell their story again, as they've done so many times before. But that does not make it easier. One of them, Luna, said she feels the pain every time she tells the story as if she would you know, be telling it for the first time. And it was also a special experience for the two of us as their conversation partners. We discussed this with both of them during the process of recording their stories, because of course, the last thing we want is this experience of telling the story again, that that triggers trauma or makes them feel bad in any way. We think we did it in a sensible way by asking them if they wanted to do it and how and when in a comfortable setting and Really them deciding on these things, not us, them being in the driver's seat. And uh, in our work as journalists and uh, Fritz as a human rights lawyer, this was, of course, not the first time we talked to survivors. Maybe we have even become a bit desensitized. But if we learned one thing again from the experts we talked to, 
it is that we need to make sure that the balance is right and that it's not us deciding to tell their story, but them deciding that. It is their decision, their accounts. So today we want to take you listeners along to those two conversations we had with mental health experts who know so much more on victim trauma. We talked to them in preparation for last week's episode, and we talked to them again to look back at what Nuran and Luna told us on last week's episode and told you listeners. We talked to the two experts about these individual accounts and memories and also the bigger context, the Syrian context, and the universal parallels that these experts see based on their experience in their field. And we thought it would be interesting for you listeners to get this background as well. We hope you benefit from it as much as we did. First, you will hear the conversation Fritz had with Dr. Petrana Mladina. She is a clinical psychologist based in Dubai, looking back now at 19 years of experience in clinical psychology. For 14 years, she provided support for victims of war crimes worldwide, three years at the United Nations Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and 11 years at the International Criminal Court, both in The Hague in the Netherlands. I started by asking for her reaction to last week's episode with the stories of the two survivors. There were many parallels with the stories I had the privilege to hear um, from other victims. That always does like two things to me, which is, you know, the, the repetition of, you know, how terrible things are that people have to go through and, you know, how it, it repeats itself and, you know, with the same intensity and magnitude. Um, but then also how unique each story is, the little details, you know, very personal. Um, and always, you know, what amazes me always absolutely is the amount of courage and resilience that you can hear from the stories. Um, for both women, you know, I think something that really stood out as a common thread was that, you know, as much as they were fearing their own life in those moments and just really not knowing what's going to happen to them next because nobody is, of course, telling them what's happening, that they were actually more scared about what's going to happen to their family members who got, you know, implicated because of them. And that kind of fear for their loved ones and just that sense of, you know, I am exposing them to something, I should have protected them. And, you know, in one in one case, it was about the children. In another case, it was about the mother of the victim. This is something that's very typical for women to care about others more than themselves. But I have heard that from men as well, uh, male victims. And I just give that additional respect one has for, for the person on a human level. Is this something you've heard from victims who have told similar stories about psychological torture and the element of family members being used and abused to torture them indirectly? Yes, absolutely, because it's, it's one of those terrible uh, but perfect mechanisms to get into people's heads and psychologically break them. Mm -hmm. I've even heard it from abducted children in Uganda or child soldiers in, in the Congo where they were just fearing for their families. Um, so even children fearing for their parents and how their you know, parents and grandparents will be affected uh, by them uh, and their actions. And so, you know, if, if a child already thinks that way, you can only imagine an adult. It's really uh, fascinating in a way uh, and terrifying because, 
you know, I've, I've worked in, in like across different uh, cultural contexts and, you know, including my own region where I come from, where we also had war uh, in ex-Yugoslavia. And you can see that no matter the geographical distance and absolutely no way, you know, these warlords could have communicated in any way that they really all have the same modus operandi. And I do believe that there's, there's, you know, it's part of the, the, the human psyche fabric. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in, in the right conditions, you know, it, it just comes out. But, you know, like one of your interviewees said was that, you know, that she believed that all these, that, that these men were uh, doing all these things because they themselves were scared to lose power and control, right? Yeah. So it's like that twisted way of, imposing control because you are so scared of you know being on the other side that really that creates monsters um, out of humans so there is something in the human psyche you're saying that enables these individuals or these groups structures and, and organizations and regimes to really get to their victims psychological breaking point and in, in, a, in a very parallel way in, in, in conflicts all over the world. It is, and you know, it's really bad, obviously, to know that this exists. But on the other hand, in my work, it helps a lot because the trauma seems to be universal and the way people go through it and how it affects them and how they come out of it is also universal. And then, you know, on that level, we can connect no matter where we're coming from. But the conversation always seems to be the same, along the same lines. Yeah. yeah. The, the topic of memory and the value of survivor victim witnesses in the courtroom. What, what can you tell us from your experience are the, the main issues in that regard? Well, memory is such a fragile um, concept, yet so many things on this earth are based on memory or like, you know, rely on memory. And so um, everything we remember, memory itself is always reconstructing, right? Like we lose the original the moment it happens. And so every memory is somehow contaminated. Now with traumatic memory, the, the main issues are that it's fragmentary. So it's not chronological. And this is the main problem because in the courtroom, you want chronology. You want the sequence of events and you want precision. Right. And so what is captured in traumatic mind is like a very precise snapshots of most difficult moments, but you can't put them together, right? It's like, like a, a broken puzzle. So that is very difficult then for people to put into a narrative. And then also the voluntary recall, so like trying to remember something on purpose is very difficult and in some cases impossible, but involuntary recall, like one of your victims you interviewed she described she's like i just have these associations with things that happen in prison in my everyday life it just takes me by surprise every time that's exactly what's happening involuntary recall is just you know something that becomes um, a part of your life it's a very complex issue but it kind of has a rather simple explanation so in the moments when traumatic events is happening. It's not happening outside of a context. So, you know, it is in prison. And if somebody is getting tortured, they will still perceive the person or persons who are torturing them. They will perceive smells. You know, there's a lot of sensory information coming in. It's not being registered in that moment. And what is happening is that the fear reaction 
uh, is being created as a natural response. What then happens um, because, you know, it's such an overwhelming experience is that that fear response becomes automatic and like a baseline response to those same sensory triggers. Uh-huh. And so if somebody was in prison and they were being tortured and they thought they were dying so many times and every time this happens, they could hear somebody's footsteps coming and they're wondering like who is going to come in and what are they going to do to me? Every time later in life they hear anybody's footsteps, this is the first thought they will have. Because the trauma is then extracted from that context. Uh, Why is it happening spontaneously to people like, to one of the interviewees is because brain just never stops trying to integrate information. You know what? That's what brain does. And so brain is like, no, 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 I have to make sense out of it. And then has that automatic fear reaction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and unless you go through therapy and you integrate it and you contextualize it, you will simply have to live with it for the rest of your life. Just a quick note here in between. Vedrana is mentioning the importance of therapy and mental health support, especially for victims of trauma. And we will hear more about this from the second expert, the one that Karam talked to in a little bit. You, you did some work with international organizations, um, yeah. including with, 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 with lawyers, with prosecutors, with investigators. And um, some of your work was, was really very much about the responsibility that those actors have, investigators, lawyers, prosecutors, maybe also Uh, journalists. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about about that? You know, our approaches should be unified around do no harm, or at least not to cause more harm that's already already been caused to these people. A victim-centered approach and just victim-informed or survivor-informed to make sure that they are not going to get re-traumatized, that this is not going to damage them in any way, let alone in a significant way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what we had, for example, uh, at the International Criminal Court, where I worked at the Office of the Prosecutor, was to, you know, prior to any investigative interview with victims, conduct a so-called psychosocial pre-interview assessment to talk to the person and assess their level of vulnerability, Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, see if they can go through the interview without being harmed. And then also we would stay present for most of the interviews just to be there uh, and intervene if there's a need uh, for crisis intervention during the interview, especially with children and victims of of sexual crimes. So with everything that you've seen and and everything that you've heard in your um, life working with victims and survivors of, of these terrible international crimes, would you say you are an optimist or a pessimist? Um, that's a really good question. And my answer is that I am a cautious optimist, uh, if that makes sense. So, you know, I'm, I'm quite a realist, really. We always have to um, look at the circumstances. We have to bear in mind that there are so many um, limits to so many judicial systems and that, you know, justice is mainly symbolic in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, But what makes me optimistic always is human nature and common humanity and just what connects us, you know, on a level of of just um, understanding the suffering uh, and then also, you know, uh, being resilient and wanting to move on and, you know, just holding on to those values that make us go through hardship, you know, try to kind of make 
the best out of it. That 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 keeps me optimistic. Thank you so much, Vedrana, for speaking to us on the podcast and and uh, helping us understand these these complex issues of victim trauma a little bit better. It was really my pleasure. This topic is very close to my heart, and I want to thank you for you know having this podcast and just trying to help people um, be involved and and understand and stay informed and then form their own opinion. Um, I think that's really important. So thank you for doing that. And to understand the situation of mental health care in countries like Syria before and after the conflict, I spoke to Diana Reyes. She's a Syrian-American public mental health researcher based in Washington, D.C., where she is also a non-resident fellow with the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. She's also a PhD candidate and has worked on the topic of mental health of victims and refugees in Berlin and Ghazi Antab in Turkey. I want to start off by saying just how inspired I felt uh, having listened to, to Nuran and Luna's mm -hmm. stories and that they were uh, brave enough to share them uh, with your listeners and to the public, how they've been able to uh, overcome what they endured and also uh, be able to move on with their lives. But I did want to ask you how you felt um, when you listened to their stories as a Syrian yourself and as somebody who, you know, understands uh, kind of the, the context yeah. of what they were describing. Oh, well, this is a good question. Uh, and I think I can say, as a journalist, I uh, try to detach myself from the story. Uh, I don't want to be the story. I report on it as best as I can give victims voices and tell the world about their accounts. But as a Syrian, at the end of the day, those accounts are, are very familiar to me, uh, close to home, you know. Those accounts could be the stories of members of my extended family or of my neighbors or, or friends. I think being Syrian means that you are really part of this conflict, uh, regardless of how far you want to go. Absolutely. And I, I'm so glad you said that because that, that um, plays a huge role in how we, we overcome, I think, the collective trauma that we've experienced as Syrians, as Syrian diaspora, as people who are connected to the crisis and, and uh, invested in it. That's a healing process on its own. And it's something that we can uh, continue to rely on each other to do and to build ourselves up um, in order to overcome, you know, a lot of the trauma that we've collectively experienced. Diana, could you please describe to me and our listeners the landscape of mental health in Syria? The dearth of resources in terms of mental health service provision in countries like Syria and across the region are so vast. Uh, for example, before the war inside Syria, there was only 70 psychiatrists serving a population of 22 million. Mm. And now in areas that are particularly prone to violence and we're, we're seeing a greater need for mental health resources, such as the northwest part of Syria, there are only two psychiatrists serving a population of four million. And so this, this gives you a snapshot of, of just how vast the need is in terms of mental health resources. Um, there's also a lack of understanding of culturally specific ways in how mental health manifests in, in populations across the Middle East, and particularly those who have been affected by conflict. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And unfortunately, um, it's only been filled uh, in recent years by the presence of NGOs who are attempting to scale up mental health services in the region. Um, but this is done from a very Western-centric point of view and uh, doesn't really take into account the culturally and in, in my research interests, the, the religiously specific needs that um, these, these communities require. But can you tell me how exposure to, to conflict and all the resulting crises uh, function as, as triggers for trauma? 
So research shows that um, individuals who've uh, been exposed to prolonged um, conflict uh, struggle a lot with uh, mental health problems, including symptoms of depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. And I mean, this is no exception in the Syrian context, especially those who have had to leave, you know, the upheaval of, of leaving their homes and their families behind, and the psychological burden of their journeys to a new country. In a new host country, this distress is often exacerbated by uh, various social, economical, and legal barriers that uh, refugees and asylum seekers face as soon as they arrive. One of the main reasons I uh, pursued this line of work is because um, my own family, uh, my father specifically, was exiled from Syria in the 80s. Uh, he came to the U.S. at a very young age and had to integrate very quickly and learn English and adapt. Um, and this has always been a point of fascination for me, you know, how did a 17-year-old um, uh, Hussam Reyes, my father, how did he adapt to this new country um, so quickly and, and was able to bounce back despite the atrocities he had witnessed in his hometown of, of Hama. And um, I think this, this goes to show just how important it is um, to, to welcome refugees and migrants into host countries who have uh, significantly contributed to countries like the United States, uh, to Germany, to Canada in the long term. But um, as soon as they arrive, it's really important to invest in providing them the mental health support and uh, psychosocial resources so that they are able to, to integrate properly and to contribute to society. How prepared do you think uh, are these host countries uh, uh, in terms of providing uh, culturally sensitive mental health care to, to migrants and refugees? I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, especially in providing access for refugees and migrants um, to uh, mental health services that are culturally sensitive and linguistically accessible. And what do we mean by those? Um, culturally sensitive mental health care is uh, doesn't have to be provided by an Arabic-speaking psychiatrist or somebody from, from the region, but at least uh, by somebody who understands the socio-political circumstances that have led to the displacement of, of the refugee client seeking services, um, as well as you know what it means to be Syrian or what it means to be from Iraq and have experienced uh, generations of, of conflict and um, you know, turmoil in your home country. I think there still needs to be a lot of work uh, done. And um, as we've seen in, in the last week, um, the unfortunate passing of the LGBT activist, uh, Sara Hegazi, who was in Canada uh, having sought asylum um, from Egypt for being persecuted there um, as an LGBT activist and a survivor of, of torture and, and, and detention. Um, she was in a host country like Canada um, and she was suffering from mental health issues, uh, which led to her unfortunate death. But um, the country um, hadn't provided, uh, you know, the, the kind of resources that she might have been able to utilize um, and, and could have prevented her death. Um, and I think this is a very important issue that also sheds light on, on the significance of the mental health um, of refugees and migrants and that impact it has on their integration in host country contexts. Do you think the lack of mental health care for survivors uh, prevents them somehow from opening up and coming forward to testify against their victimizers? For example, this trial in Koblenz. We expect people to who have endured such atrocities, you know, um, to want to seek justice immediately if they have the chance. But often, uh, as you mentioned, Karam, people have buried away so much and have moved on essentially without addressing uh, some of the root causes of, of this trauma. Um, 
And I think the concern is that um, it, it doesn't really go away and that um, if, it's, if it's kept inside, then it will explode at some point. And so um, it's important when considering, you know, the specific population of victims who are uh, participating in a trial against their perpetrator to provide support to them before, during, and after the trial and making sure that they feel um, that they have access to um, mental health resources should they need them. But that also um, there's other, other considerations and ethical considerations that go into, um, you know, victims participating into or survivors participating in a trial which is, um, you know, they, they are free to disclose uh, as much as they'd like and to participate as, um, as much as they'd like, but without feeling the pressure to, um, just because they are, they are in this particular position. And to end on a hopeful note, um, I think that um, the Syrian conflict and other uh, traumatic incidents in the region have actually allowed an opportunity for people to talk about their mental health in a way that isn't um, stigmatized in a way that feels collective. Like, you know, I, I was a victim of this conflict and I endured this, well, you also endured this, so you understand where I'm coming from. And uh, people have found it easier to speak about their mental health issues um, uh, openly um, and including with their family members and to take those very first steps, which are the hardest in seeking mental health care and treatment. Um, and this is something that's very empowering and I think uh, people are uh, seeking help, and as long as they know where to find these resources, uh, then um, you know the, the, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you, Diana, for this helpful comment, and uh, thank you for coming on our podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. As always with our guests, we will link to some of her work and links she shared with us in the show notes for those of you who want to find out more. Now it's time for the court update. The court is in session as we record this episode, but we did manage to get a hold of our court reporter in Koblenz, Hannah El-Hitami, for just a quick update in between. So we heard a witness who used to work for the Secret Service in Syria. The witness told the German police officers about um, seeing EIDA on at least one occasion. Uh, he talked a lot about dead bodies being delivered by EADA and his troop to the department where the witness worked. However, the problem was that in court, the witness was not willing to repeat that information that he had given in the police interrogations. And uh, the judge and pro federal prosecutor grew increasingly uh, frustrated and even, you know, kind of angrily told him, hey, you really have to answer our questions. You're going to incriminate yourself if you keep on lying or if you make a false statement. After a while, it turned out that the witness's family in Turkey was being threatened by members of EADA's family. So then we all, you know, kind of understood why he, in the meantime, <laughs> changed his mind about giving a really honest statement and um, incriminating, perhaps incriminating EADA with the evidence that he gave. Next week, the court will be in session again, so we will catch you up on that. And we will also talk about something that has been on our minds. Both of us have worked for a while on the topic of Syria and accountability for crimes committed there during the conflict that has now lasted almost 10 years already. We have observed something that we wanted to dive into a bit deeper with you, listeners. Something Fritz and I call Syria fatigue. Our people and media and diplomats and donor countries, are they getting tired of Syria? Are they getting tired of the conflict, of reporting on it? 
We will be discussing this phenomena on the podcast next week. What does it actually mean? What is it? Is there even such a thing as Syria fatigue? And we will also discuss the question of how has the Syrian regime taken advantage of this phenomenon, right? We will take you along to a conversation that I had with Syrian activist Wafa Mustafa. My relationship with my dad's absence is very complex. And after seven years, it's never, it doesn't get easy. It always gets harder. She hasn't stopped campaigning for the release of her father and thousands of Syrians disappeared in, in, in prisons. But are people still listening? We'll discuss more on that next week. And for now, it's time to wrap up this episode. You can support this podcast by subscribing and reviewing it in your podcast app. And by sending us a donation if you feel so inclined. To do that, hit the support this podcast button on our website or the podcast player. Thank you, kind donor of last week. You and the other friendly supporters keep this podcast running. Yes, shukran jazilan. Branch 251 is listener-supported. It is created, produced, and presented by the two of us from our home studios, Karam from Berlin and me from Paris. And the trial is taking place in Koblenz, which is somewhere in the middle between us. Uh, pretty convenient. Thank you to Marta van Doomale for his production feedback. And Hannah Hitami is our court reporter. We are out for this week and back next. See you then on Branch 251. See you then. Take care.